Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 94 of Hack to Start. This episode features Leslie Bradshaw, the managing partner at Made by Many, a product innovation studio. Tyler and I wanted to invite Leslie onto the show to share her story as an entrepreneur and leader in business. Leslie has won several awards and accolades for her work, including Fast Company's Most Influential Woman in Tech, 100 Most Creative People in Business, Inc.'s 30 Under 30, and Ad Age Small Agency of the Year, among many more. She writes a series on Forbes called More Power Seats about issues facing women in corporate environments and often writes, speaks, and just demonstrates what professional leadership is all about. Leslie joins us to share her story, what motivated her to get into tech and startups, why she helped launch Just3, a creative and very successful agency at 23 years old, how she managed to execute so many amazing projects for partners, the true cost of success that people don't talk about, why having good team matters, and much more. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Leslie. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We're super excited to have you. Uh, I mean, I, it, it's almost impossible to know where to start. You've done so many amazing things, won so many great awards. Um, but but let's start off by by having you share a little bit more about yourself with us and, and the listeners. Can you tell us where you're from and, and what you studied? So I originally grew up in the Lake Tahoe area, which is right on the border between California and Nevada and the Sierra Nevadas. And little did I know at the time, but apparently that's one of the most amazing places in the world to visit. I just, for me, it was having a really big backyard that was a forest and skiing with my dad who worked at a ski resort. Uh, my mom was an accountant for kind of one of the local business organizations. And I was able to kind of walk from school to go see my mom afterwards every day. I just really kind of grew up in a really kind of beautiful area. And when I was 12 years old, my parents said, you know, it's our dream to own a farm and to start a vineyard and we're all going to move to Oregon. And so, of course, I'm in middle school. And at the time, Clueless was out, if you remember that, with Alicia Silverstone. And I was like, whatever, mom, like you're, you're making me move in like the middle of my sixth grade year. This is going to be so bad. And actually turned out to be the best thing ever happened to me. <laughs> if I were to look at like one of the most pivotal moments in my life, it was moving on a farm and learning just really hard work uh, and working as a team. And so that was kind of one of the foundational things that happened. And then from there, you know, just worked really hard at school, played a lot of sports, you know, really into the kind of the team oriented stuff there, which I'm happy to dig in on a little bit more. It was really, again, a formidable experience. And then when um, time came to go to college, I had to choose between getting a full ride scholarship to one of the UC schools down in California or paying a lot of money to go to a private school in the Chicago area. And I first decided to take the full ride. And then a couple of weeks in, I decided that I made the wrong choice, which sometimes we just it's never too late to change everything. And it's never too late to turn back. And that's something I was able to kind of realize and ended up transferring. So I went to the University of Chicago and studied just about everything under the sun, which is what I think <laughs> young people should do. 
Um, I think majoring or focusing too heavily in one area, I, I like to say, you know, don't major in business because business is really just how people think and how the economic systems work. So if you like that stuff, then study math and business and people. But uh, yeah, I, I did a little bit of all of that, some economics and social sciences, anthropology, gender studies. Uh, yeah. And, and I also like to think of school as a time to really refine your skills and around discipline and creative writing and research and synthesis and analytics. And you're only going to do that in coursework that you're excited about. And so I think it's really important to pursue whatever it is you're really interested in and questions you have. Like that's why we, we major in what we do when we write the papers we do, because there's some sort of burning question inside of us that we want answered. And those are, it's one of the few times in life where you can really kind of hit pause and delve in and really investigate further. So that's kind of how I looked at college. Yeah, absolutely. No, that that's really cool and, and some great advice for people listening. So how did your, your passion for entrepreneurship really develop and, and come out of, a, you know, that exposure to all these different subjects and, and opportunities? You know, I didn't have a word for it at the time. I just knew that there were certain things that I saw and I wanted to get involved in. And my boss at each job was always saying like, oh, you know, that's, that's your, you know, you're punching a little bit above your weight and you don't know enough about that particular area to figure out, you know, a new service line to sell or a new offering. And, you know, I think in many ways they were right. Like, what did I know at 22 years old? But at the same time, I also thought there was a big missed opportunity around social media and figuring out how to better use that as a business and not just look at it as like, oh, those those bloggers, those are people in their pajamas in their parents' basement. And so there's kind of this tension between my day job, which was my first job out of school was working in the kind of trademark division of a law firm, focusing on the internet division and really doing a lot of kind of online trademark policing and people who are registering domain names or using the company's mark and the source and kind of metadata and shutting those down through cease and desist letters. I'm one of those people that helps send those out. You know, moving through other jobs in Washington, D.C., I just kept seeing a gap in the offering and the way that my bosses were selling into their clients, there was just a big gap in digital. And some of that had to do with design. Some of that had to do with promotion, strategy, and even just using the internet as a large focus group and to kind of understand, you know, what consumers wanted or didn't want. I wasn't the only person feeling this and thinking this. And I think a lot of companies were emerging kind of 2005, 2006 out of the like post.com bubble burst. You know, there's a kind of a reemergence in that social media and that web 2.0 was kind of the vernacular at the time. And there, you know, I just kind of went for it. And I still had a full-time job for many years while I was building my company on the side, but I just, I saw a need and I, I knew enough to be dangerous as far as how to kind of set up a business and start getting clients and managing teams and money and people and time. And sometimes it, it didn't go very well, but went well enough that, you know, I was able to build a business out of it. Yeah, super cool. And so before we dive more into that, um, you know, I guess some other stuff that you're currently doing, uh, you write a series on Forbes called More Seats, where you, you typically write about issues facing women in, in sort of a corporate environment, maybe startup environment. So what advice do you have to share with with young female entrepreneurs and, and leaders in, in particular? Yeah, interestingly enough, I'm excited. Forbes is rebooting their kind of women network. And I will be you know, I'm still passionate about getting more women, more seats at the table, and in fact, even more power seats at the table. So thinking about, you know, who's in the C-suite, who's in the boardroom, who are making those investments, uh, and just diversifying that, not just women, but people of color, looking at just diverse backgrounds as far as age and generation. 
you know, this kind of idea that only white males in their mid-20s with hoodies on can be the only innovative people is just ridiculous. And to think about who are the consumers, who have the purchasing power, what kind of voting blocks and constituent blocks and buying blocks are driving forward the economy uh, in the U.S. as well as globally. And it certainly isn't just a bunch of millennial white men. So I think it's important that we look beyond that when we're thinking about building out teams and thinking about investing in the next generation of startups. So that's where the blog's origin came from. But uh, I'm really passionate about this concept of do leadership. And I've been so busy just doing over the last year. I haven't written anything at Forbes for over a year. And that's because thought leadership does take time away from your day-to-day job. And whether you're writing a book or blogging or giving speeches or even hopping on Skype and you know having this great conversation comes at the cost of something else. And as you know, it's been kind of a a challenge just to schedule some time together, which again, I appreciate the patience, but I think it also is indicative of where my priorities right now are. And those are getting back into kind of a, from a metaphoric standpoint, getting back into the gym and training or getting back into the studio. If I'm thinking of it as like a, a rap artist, um, you know, just working on some tracks, you know, not going on tour, not singing, not competing, but really just refining my craft and working with my team and growing the company and growing the business. And, and so my new rebooted blog at Forbes will be focusing on techniques and tactics around due leadership and to emphasize that over what I believe to be kind of an inflated personal brand and something that I see kind of people putting a lot of effort and a lot of weight on when it comes to presenting themselves when really, you know, kind of paraphrase Einstein, but he talks about, you know, wanting to make sure that the wrapper isn't more substantive than the actual meat inside the package. And that's something I I've seen all too often in job candidates. And I want to do my part in kind of hopefully changing the priority as far as where people think they should be or spending their time more on that do leadership, less on the thought leadership. So yes, I do write at Forbes. It has been a while and there's been a good reason for that. And I'm kind of excited to be able to share with that with you today. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to stay tuned for that. It sounds awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. Before we get to what you're working on today at Made by Many, you are the co-founder, president and chief operating officer at Just3. What is Just3 and what motivated you to start it? So Just3 was um, one of the kind of leading data visualization companies starting in 2006, back before infographics and social media APIs were really even a thing. We started experimenting and exploring using things like Flickr and Delicious and tapping into metadata. So thinking about people tagging links, like if you look at delicious.com and you look up Apple, and like how many, you know, what are people saying around apple.com or around cnn.com? And you can start seeing kind of a rich narrative emerge around how people conceive of a particular website or even an article. And it's just a really kind of fun from just a social scientific standpoint, a way to kind of look at some meta information that existed again before like the Twitter, Facebook kind of social media stuff. Then as Twitter came online about a year later and Facebook opened up its platform to developers, my company started looking a lot more into how to use these channels, not just for kind of interesting business intelligence or even kind of cool artistic displays, but also looking at them as channels for engagement, promotion, product marketing, you know, working with companies like Nike, but also working with companies and organizations like NASA who may not themselves be selling a product, but they're selling a concept, which is hey, it's important to investigate and invest in the future of space exploration. So with that in mind, you know, the motivation was no one was really doing it. And at the time, I was actually in a relationship with the founder of Just3, 
Jesse Thomas, and he was an incredible creative and still is a creative mind and realized that he really needed a business partner. He needed someone to help kind of ground him a little bit in reality and find ways to take a lot of the vision he had and actually execute it. So I like to say, you know, my skill set is that I have the vision to get the vision done. And so partnering with people who are visionary like Jesse uh, is really what I've made my career out of. And so we did that. We had a good run for um, about six years. So I left in late 2012 on very good terms. And He's still running the firm today in a slightly different direction, but at the core of it was always excellence in design and thinking about how to leverage interesting social media content and conversation and using it in an artistic way, but also using it in ways to help inform business strategy and understanding kind of generally what communities of people were saying about brands, about products, about concepts, about political uh, issue advocacy. You know, being in D.C. for eight years as I was, that was definitely another group of people who were very interested in what social media meant. And it seems kind of obvious in 2016 and we were in the midst of, you know, a big presidential campaign, but gosh, in 2006, 10 years ago, it wasn't as obvious a platform or concept uh, as it is today. So how did you approach building a brand new agency and, and what set you apart from other agencies? As with kind of this whole conversation, it's always easier to make kind of a clear and clean narrative after the fact. <laughs> At the time, you know, I was 24 years old. I was working nights and weekends to try to figure out how to go from doing websites and logos for local businesses and restaurants to trying to win big clients like Pepsi and Microsoft and, you know, like I said, eventually, you know, Nike and NASA. And where it really started was just doing good work. I think that's if I were to just leave everybody with one message is do good work. Be great to work with. Stay until the job is done put out your best effort, ask questions, you know, own your mistakes, partner with great people. And that's, that was at the core of what we were ultimately doing. And then also be able to tell your story, you know, and be able to get out there. And when data visualization all of a sudden kind of became a buzzword within the marketing community, we just happened to have done a lot of writing and producing content on the you know, internet with our own infographics, our own portfolio websites. And so when people would Google us or would Google data visualization or agency, social media, APIs, Twitter, you know, we'd continue to come up. And sometimes we would do some search engine marketing and buy some AdWord buys against that and do some Facebook advertising. And then other times it was just purely organic. And eventually it just became a word of mouth thing. Like Twitter put us on a preferred developer list. And when brands like the NFL and Visa and whatnot would come to them and say, we need to do something cool around the Super Bowl, like we did for Super Bowl 45. We were on that short list of people to call. So you did so many things at Just3. And like looking back, what were some of the biggest wins and lessons you had during your time there? Oh my gosh, I don't know if I could even get it through in one, <laughs> um, one clear thought. But I think one of the biggest things was partner with great people and work with great, talented, wonderful people. And I think, you know, just I was catching up with some old coworkers today that we followed each other from agency to agency. Even one of um, that law firm, that trademark job I mentioned earlier in 2005, I stayed in touch with one of the other paralegal assistants. Uh, his name's Chris. And when I could, I was able to hire him because I just remembered him being so fun and talented and smart and just the kind of person you want to work with. And I think that's, that's, I think something everybody can do is keep a running list of who are the great people that you 
can work with. And, you know, who are these people in your life? And who are those people that you would want to call up and field the A-team with? You know, you think about the NBA draft or you know, any time you could kind of pick the best of the best. And sometimes it is about the best talent, but sometimes it's also about great people that work cohesively in a group, right? And so that's the number one thing I would say is it's just that teamwork. And then, like I said before, just really pushing for excellent work product and not pushing it off on anybody else, but really owning your piece of it and finding a way to deliver under the constraints, right? There's not unlimited time and budget to get things done. So you have to figure out how to do it within the constraints that you do have. Um, other things I would say, you know, don't date your co-founder. I think it's a little bit obvious and kind of a funny thing looking back at it. I think there's some successful husband-wife, husband-husband-wife-wife wife pairings of founders. But I think when you're still in the relationship stage, it's just not <laughs> the right thing to do. And it's, it's easier said than done because sometimes you just find yourself it wasn't like I said, oh, I'm going to set out to start this company with my boyfriend. It was more like, let me start this company because I really am passionate about doing something that isn't being done in the marketplace right now. And one thing leads to another. And before you know it, you're, you're six years in, $13 million later, and you're like, wait, what happened? Right? So I think, again, it's a clear, it's a cleaner narrative now. But at the time, it was a lot clunkier. And gosh, a couple other things. Just take care of yourself, your health. You know, I really, I gave it my all and I probably went through gosh, I think almost 60 pounds I gained. And it was just such a pressure on my, my overall system. The other thing I want to say is take care of your family. And I just, I was, I was an absent sister. I was an absent friend. I was an absent family member. And that, you know, for years, you know, although you say, oh, you've got these awards and it seems like you're so successful, but at what cost? Right. And so for many years I was hard on my body, hard on my family. Um, I now live with my sister. We're roommates in New York city. And it's been absolutely one of the best experiences in my life. And I'm so grateful to kind of be able to reboot and kind of realign my life towards the things that matter. I know it sounds a little cheesy, but I think you can kind of get lost in success or in chasing something. And then you realize, like, why am I even doing this? Like, is this even worth the cost that it's putting on my body and on my, my health and on my family and friends? Yeah, that's some really good, like, real advice, real, like, life, you know, the real talk, I guess. That, that's awesome, awesome <laughs> oh, to hear that. I keep it so real. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like I could sit here and be like, oh, yeah, and I did this great thing and this project and this award. And, like, you know, yeah, those are all just things that are representative of a lot of hard work by not just myself, but a lot of the people that I call team members and partners over the years. And so I could I could list off just about everybody's name to make sure that they get the credit as well. And I think that goes back to you know some of the thought leaders who are kind of the ones taking up a lot of the air in the room, sometimes myself included in that list, outshine the do leaders. You know, you don't actually hear the people who are there actually building the iPhone. You know about Johnny Ive who's designed it and, you know, Steve Jobs who invented it. But what about all the people that executed it and made it actually come to life or marketed it? Like, who are those people? Have you ever heard their names? Right. So I think my goal would be to just get more credit for the people who are behind the scenes doing the doing. And for me, it was, you know, Becca Colbaugh. She was my first hire as an employee and she was with me all the way, you know, through, gosh, five years. And she was my VP of operations by the end, running huge accounts and doing amazing work. Her number two, Jenny Karn, who then hired Lydia Walbum, who then hired Sherry Cook, who then hired, oh gosh, there's this list and list, um, Lauren Cook and Brandy Jackson. And there's just a list I can just keep going. And all of those names, those are the people that represent those awards. Like when you see Jess three getting the small agency of the year for Mad Age, it wasn't because Jesse and I were the most amazing thing. It was because our team was, and it was because our clients trusted us and took a risk on a small agency to work on really big game changing things like the first check-in from space with NASA and Foursquare, or, you know, the first data visualization for the 2008 election with C-SPAN. 
they were innovating on Twitter before CNN even got to it. And that was uh, due in large part to our strategy and, and our agency early on. That's awesome. So you're currently the managing partner at Made by Many. And so for those who might not know, what is Made by Many and what really motivated you to join their team? Uh, so Made by Many is a London-based company, been around just about almost 10 years at this point, and started with the premise that technology was going to change business full stop. And it wasn't just about a marketing channel, which is kind of where my career started, but it was going to be how business got done. It was going to enable business. And so whether you're just a playing dead down the center tech company like a Google or a Microsoft, whose end product is technology, or whether you're a company like Seamless, who, you know, Technically, you're an operations kind of logistics company. You're delivering one thing from one area to another party on the other end, and there's some financial exchange. But technology is enabling a great consumer experience and also allowing for it to be delivered at scale. So you can have a deployment of a workforce and logistics that just otherwise wouldn't be possible at that scale and at that level of experience. So made by many, we create digital products and services. Oftentimes it's creating new revenue streams and new relationships with end consumers. So I use a seamless example, not a client, but one of our projects that pretty interesting is that we worked with Universal Music, who owns 80% of all the best recordings of classical music in the world. And CD sales are way down, and the streaming services like Pandora and Spotify, while great innovations, are not necessarily optimal for a classical music experience. You don't necessarily know what to search for. Even if you do look up something like Pachelbel and Canon or Moonlight Sonata, something you might know, you don't know, gosh, what's the best recording? And, oh, I want to build a playlist because I have a bunch of friends coming over, but where do you even start? And so this was something where we came in and we helped market test whether or not people would be willing to pay a subscription monthly fee for classical only streaming. And so the first thing our company does is we come in and we help look at the business model, we price test, we really kind of figure out the proposition, you know, do people want it to be just like Spotify or do they want an entry point like a mood, like give me something for commuting or for working out or for studying. And over time, what we start doing is actually prototyping the experience through low fidelity, even paper prototypes, and then eventually working through to clickable prototypes. There's some great software out there now, things like Envision and Marvel and Flinto that allow you to just take a design and a concept and make it clickable without having to actually write code, which is allowing the customer, the, the client that we engage with to really mitigate risk and not overinvest in the wrong direction, while at the same time refining the concept with the end user. So all said and done, we launched it in the UK. It's called Composed. We did the branding. We did, you know, support it on the kind of business strategy and then actually did the design and development of the application and all of the backend algorithms and everything that supported it. And we took it a step further, which is we helped recruit the team that was going to run it within Universal. I think some agencies are built on the model of like, how can I get on a retainer and keep charging the client? But we really believe that innovation should be owned fully by the client. And while we're an accelerant, like we were brought in and we help them get there a little faster. Ultimately, our goal is to create the culture and capabilities internally to sustain that innovation. So that's something we're always aiming to do. So we hired a six-person product team, cross-trained them, and then handed over the keys so that they can start scaling it to other countries. That's awesome. So you've already shared so much uh, throughout the episode, but are there any other really important lessons around growth, partnerships, and product designs that you could share with our listeners? I think the number one thing anybody who's setting out to do something new should be asking is not about making it cool or awesome, but making it useful. You know, we have a saying at Made by Many where we say, before you build the thing right, make sure you build the right thing. And oftentimes I see entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, get a lot of confirmation bias from their network. 
They're people they work with, their friends, their family, they're people that want to see, see you succeed and they believe in you. So when you give them the idea and you pitch it to them, the automatic response is, oh yeah, I'd use that. Oh yeah, that's totally a problem. But the most important thing to do is to actually turn it into some propositional prototypes. And there's some great books out there on design thinking, rapid prototyping on kind of the lean startup, I think is a great place to also start with Eric Reese, kind of his seminal book in 2009. And he's since you know expanded upon it and been applied in many, many arenas outside of just technology startups, but, and based in the lean manufacturing movement, obviously with total quality management, Toyota and many other kind of shoulders upon which it's been built. But back to the concept of testing, validating is just look at, look at your idea as a hunch and a hypothesis and don't be wedded to it as a solution. 10 out of 10 entrepreneurs who succeed pivot and pivot and pivot, not because it's a cool word to use, but because they see other opportunities as they're learning from their end user. You know, they can't come in and force a solution. They come in, they listen, they think that there's something here. And while they're there, they actually discover that there's a bigger need in another area. And the companies who are stubborn and don't pivot, don't succeed and don't survive. And those who are willing to be flexible with their business model and to make changes based on the feedback loop that they're getting are the ones that we still know about, right? You think about Airbnb or Uber, you know, all of these kind of started out conceptually about where they are, but over time they've added new features and functionalities specifically because they've learned from their end users what, what's working and what's not working. So I think that's, yeah, the biggest thing is make, test, and learn. You know, if you're spending more than two weeks before you talk with an end user about a new proposition or a new part of your concept, it's been too long. You know, I've definitely worked on products where I've worked months in quote stealth mode only to launch it and find out it's the wrong thing. So I think people need to really kind of get over that, that fear of copyright or like, oh, someone's going to steal my idea. I say, you know what? Steal my idea. Go for it because it's going to be so expensive to execute. Like, good luck with that. In fact, I'll pay you to steal my idea because <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's that hard. I just think that is just a very, yeah, very obtuse way to think about your, your idea. So anyway, make tests learn, look at it as a hunch and a hypothesis, get outside of your own network, talk with real users, observe them, you know, don't give people what they want, give them what they need. And the only way you're going to know what they need is to observe their daily life and watch where they have little life hacks. Where are they coming up with things that are gluing together maybe a couple of different systems or processes? I think back to two summers ago, I was working on a really cool project with a large retailer and I thought I knew everything about shopping. You know, I've been shopping since I was like five years old. I love doing it. I have a black belt in it. And I thought, okay, I'm making this really interesting app around deals for this retailer. And I conceptualized how I shopped and I projected that onto the end user who is a different shopper. In fact, she is much more deal oriented. She's got a little bit tighter budget and her time frame to do her shopping because she is a mom is not one where, you know, I'm single and I don't have kids. So what I ended up doing is going out to the Bronx, out to Brooklyn, out to Queens, and spending some real quality time shopping along and just observing, almost kind of like Jane Goodall in the bushes, right? Just anthropologically watching someone's day unfold. And I was seeing these women just do some amazing things. They were taking photos. They'd go try something on. Then they'd take a photo of it, and they get back to their desk and then look up look it up on the computer. And I said, well, why, why'd you just not buy it? And they said, well, I only have 30 minutes for lunch before my boss starts wondering where I am. So I can either stand in line to try it on or stand in line to buy it, but I can't do both. So, okay, well, why don't you go online and try to buy it off the app? And he said, well, in my mall, it's all cement and my signal isn't very good. So it's you know not something I can do. So you're coming up with these like hacks. And as I think about building an app for women like this, I'm thinking, huh, 
Is there an offline mode? Is there something that allows them to scan some sort of barcode instead of them having to look it up, but instead allow them to quickly find that item that they want to purchase? So there's that kind of stuff I would never in a million years come up on my, with my kind of own conception of shopping and my own biases, let alone if I would have interviewed them. And if I would have just sat there and asked them questions that may have come up, it wasn't until I observed how they went about it that the real nuggets of truth and interesting potential solutions came forth. So I think that's another thing is observational, get out in the field, just enough research is a book out there. It's quick read. It's by A Book Apart, which is a publishing series by A List Apart. And I highly recommend that for anyone who wants to start a company for any service or product, you know, just to really understand how to best test your market and do it in a way that has, you know, some rigor and some integrity behind the way you go about it. It doesn't have to be a big end sample. In fact, it can be a small subsample, but it, the way you go about collecting that data, there are some best practices. Those are a lot of great insights. Do you have any recommendations on great content that you've come across lately, either a book, video, or blog post? Just taking the time to absorb whatever it is you actually are consuming. I think it's easy to kind of skim and grab the headlines or be on Medium or on a newsletter and just kind of capture 10 things, seven, four, you know, three, five, nine things I learned. And, you know, I just find anything that you can actually, just like I said with the advice around college and what to major in, pick something that you're excited about and read about it and dig in. You know, don't just skim, don't skip class, right? Like don't just click on the link or feel like, oh, I need to subscribe to The Economist because it's a smart thing to do. I'm backlogged probably like 12 issues myself. I'm never up on all that stuff that I'd like to be. But yeah, I would just say pick things that are interesting to you and finish the story end to end. Uh, I read a book recently. It's been out for a little while, but it's by General Stanley McChrystal. It's called Team of Teams. It just really does a great job of articulating the shift right now in the world of business, of war, of biology, which is a shift from the complicated world to the complex world. And the complicated world could be controlled with kind of that scientific management, that Frederick Winslow Taylor concept of breaking down things to its simplest parts and then putting a supply chain or kind of putting a conveyor belt together where each person does just one part of the overall picture. Whereas a complex world, conditions are constantly changing. And each person on that team needs to know about the other person's role should something change and should they need to dynamically take that role over or figure out how in real time they can switch up their concept. The best probably example of this is the Navy SEALs and thinking about how they work so closely together, learning one another. You know, they take they do everything from going to dinner together to doing a lot of the drills and exercises together because they start to learn, you know, just how one another ticks and when actually in the battle zone and trying to accomplish very, very intense, tight missions, they're able to do that because there's almost like a kind of a fourth dimension of communication that's occurring. And they're able to quickly adapt to the scenario. Command and control is kind of the, oh, let me get my boss's 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 boss to sign off on it before I can move versus this idea of, okay, I'm empowered at my level to make a decision because I've got the trust and the knowledge and the skills to execute should things change from what we talked about a week ago. So great book, uses a lot of really good metaphors and other examples across science. One other thing that I love from that book is just the high cost of integration and how the more complexity and the more people you add to something, the more expensive it becomes and the more likely it is to fail. Um, I've had clients who have the best intentions, but they'll say, oh, I've got this great design firm and they're going to do the branding. Oh, and I, I just love you guys for user experience. And you know what? And I also have this great development firm. They're in India. They're really cost effective. And I'd like all three of you to work together to build this product. And I give them the, the story that Stanley McChrystal put forth in his book, which is when JFK said, we're going to go to the moon. And 
we get everyone, the best science scientists in a room, and we start working towards that end goal. Uh, simultaneously, you know, it was part of it was spurred on by the fact that Russia was already successfully getting into space. Um, and so Europe created a coalition. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it's between France, Germany, Italy, and England. And each of those countries have their best and brightest. They bring them together and they say, okay, you work on this piece and you work on that piece. And before you know it, you've got four countries working on different aspects of the rocket ship experience. Now, we all know how it ended for us, right? We got to the moon and it was awesome, but Europe never made it because the thing went up a couple feet in the air and then it crashed back down. And it wasn't because these people weren't smart and weren't doing their best, but it was because they were in different countries, the communication barriers, the language barriers, all of that, every integration point cost the project. So when you're thinking about putting projects that are successful together, it's really going to be about co-location, about developing empathy for each other's disciplines. It's about sharing a language. Maybe you all speak English, but maybe you've got engineers and designers and how do you get them to bridge between their two knowledge bases? So anyway, great book. Definitely recommend checking it out. Cool. Well, Leslie, thanks so much for, for your time and, and all the insights. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today and, and share all that with us. That, that was amazing. Thanks. Thanks again so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. As I like to say, you know, it's, I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. And I think there's sometimes there's this kind of pedestal thing that we do once people are like, oh, but you've made it or you've done this. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I, I succeeded at some things, but that was after about 10 years of working really, really hard. And, you know, I got to that top of that mountain, but guess what? There's like 20 more mountains that are 10 times as high and I'm climbing those right now. And so um, again, using that analogy around the, uh, making hit records, you know, I'm still playing around with some tracks. I'm still, you know, working out the lyrics and I, I don't yet have that next album ready to put out, but I don't mind in the meantime, kind of sharing the work in progress and being honest and vulnerable about the fact that it isn't always easy. And that a lot of stuff gets sacrificed to get where you are. And, and at every level of success, you know, you think, gosh, I've achieved this, but what about the people that are running billion dollar businesses? You know, not just millions, but billions. Like, that's just crazy. That's a thousand millions. <laughs> um, I don't know how they sleep at night and what kind of teams they have under them to make it work. But hats off to them is what I say. Wow, that's awesome. What a great way to end the show. Leslie, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, it was amazing to have you on the show. All right. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.